We are particularly talking about history through the eyes of a Christian believer. You mentioned Dark Age Man, which I believe is one of the new Marvel episodes that are coming out. Are you serious? No. Homoousius. In unison. Homoousius. That's the reason that I teach this, is I feel like we all should be aware of history because it informs the way we approach every day. This is History Through the Eyes of Faith podcast with Angie Ferris. I'm your host, Frank Grange Jr., along with producer Wes. Make sure you check the link in our bio for our Ko-fi page. This is a great place to support the podcast, get more information and reference material, ask questions, make comments, and even chat with us. We're glad you're here. Is it on? <laughs> is this on? Hey, we're already giggling. We're already giggling, and it's ep- it, it, we're in the episode already, the podcast episode, the casts of pods. <laughs> This is the History Through the Eyes of Faith podcast. I'm your host, Frank Grange Jr., along with producer Wes, but it would not be possible without Angie Ferris. It's, it's History Through the Eyes of Faith podcast with Angie Ferris. I'm your host, Frank Grange Jr., because Angie Ferris, this is really your podcast. Mm, I, We're hosting mm. it. We're helping it to come I, out. Yeah. I told somebody, they're like, I said, no. I wouldn't say I bring the content. I gather the content. I present the content. Yeah. Very little of it is original to me. But the way it's put together is original. There you go. Yeah. Well, you're, you know, you're creating a product based on what's out, th- the materials that are out there in the world. That I come across. Yeah. Um, you know what I find? Somebody didn't go, where does the word podcasts come from? I heard this on the radio or something or TV or on a podcast. I don't know. Where does podcasts come from? Why is there called podcasts? Doesn't make any sense. Pods. I thought that was a pretty easy thing to figure out. Would you be able to figure it out? I used to know, but I don't remember. Well, when the iPod. Oh, there you go. Yeah, came out. It was strictly an Apple product, right? But you were you had an iPod that you would put things on and listen to it. So you cast it to your pod. You, yeah, so it's a broadcast, but it's not broad enough to be on a medium that everybody had access to. It was only cast to the iPods, so they call it a podcast, like you would call it a... Yeah, oh. she, you've got a friend downstairs that's giving That me. sounds like Alexa. Yeah, somebody probably asked her what the weather No, was. I believe one of the devices is um, turned up really loud, and that was asked, yeah. Yeah. Um. But yeah, it's cast to the pod. They call it a podcast. Now you listen to them on any medium, but they still call it a podcast, which they should. I don't care. But it's an odd name, but it, to me, I thought it was pretty self-explanatory. You know that the smartphone started in 07, I think. Did it really? Yeah. Mm. iPod, uh, uh, Apple, iPhone. An iPhone. It was, I think, the first smartphone. What were you laughing at? I just think it's, I always think smartphones funny. It's like before we had dumb phones, now we have smartphones. But that makes sense. Sort of. Because it's, it's more than just a phone. Yeah, it's a computer. It has a, I call it a device. Yeah, it's everything. Yeah. Yeah, or good or ill. And not many phone conversations happening on it. Right. So talk about something before we get into um, content. Sure. Because from where I sit, I think you have added something to yourself. Yeah, I was going to bring that up. Okay. During our break. Uh, I got a tattoo. Woo! Yeah, you can see it. And and um, so I've, talked his, about, I've talked about it. You on talked the, about getting it, that you were yeah, going to I'm get it. Get it's it. on his, his forearm. It's my left forearm on the inside. So if you were holding your palm up, it would be right down the middle of your forearm. And it's kind of the whole length of my forearm. It doesn't go all the way to my watch. But it's um, Greek lettering, Greek, a Greek, Greek words, one, two, three, four, five Greek words. And I believe, and this is the thing I need to practice because I want to get, there's so many things about the tattoo that I want to get down exactly right. Mm-hmm. In short, it is a Bible verse. It's Mark 9, 24. It says, I believe, help my unbelief. 
which is what a father said to Jesus, hoping for Jesus to heal his son. It's a whole story in Mark 9 that you can read about. But he says, I believe, help my unbelief, because he had just said, can you heal him? And Jesus said, anything is possible for those who believe. And he said, I believe, help my unbelief. And I just really connect with that verse. I've shared it on here several times. Mm-hmm. I like that that part of you that doubts sometimes. Mm-hmm. And this man said to Jesus, I kind of doubt you. I, kinda, I, can ha- I can have both. Yeah. I believe I'm coming to you. I'm asking you to heal my son. I know that you can do it. And yet there's still this part in me that's like, is this really going to happen? Can yeah. he really do this? And, and so, so it's an admission that both exist together. And, and the Greek words, like this first word on my arm, that I, that's what I want to do. I want to be able to pronounce these words in Greek or in Hebrew, however you pronounce them. In Greek. Uh, and pronounce them in Greek. And then I also want to be able to say the verse in Aramaic, mm. how it was spoken. Yes. And I don't know how to do that. Yeah. So I want to learn how to say when somebody says, what is that? I can say it in Aramaic. And, and then, then say then it, it was and then it was written in Greek and in Greek it is this and in Greek the words are belief this first word is belief and these next two words say help me of you my unbelief it's when it's translated it's yeah, not it's awkward really grammar yeah it's not really the actual phrase right but I want to be able to go, okay, there you go. I want to be able to say it the right way and just be easy and, and, and something I can repeat. And, and even in, I can pray in, the, in that phrase. Yeah. Sounds good. But I like it. The words are in Greek, so it looks almost like English from a distance. And then when you look at it, you're like, that don't make no sense. <laughs> what is that? Somebody drew on your arm. <laughs> like this one, this word here. It almost looks like the word you, but it's the O and the U looks like our American o, English O and U, and it looks like a backwards Y, but I think that is help of me. I think that's what that is. So that's what's on my arm now. That's cool. And it's been very, very good. I've liked it. I, I, I liked being able to talk about it when somebody asks about it. It's kind of like a, a way to share Um that's yeah. So that's on my arm. I've had fun talking to people about it. Uh, I hope to talk to more people about it. I enjoyed showing my our parents, and they were not. My mom was not happy about it. Was she not? Mm-mm. I've got it on video. Really, I'd like to mm-hmm. see that. What yeah. was she doing? <laughs> ah. I I went to her and I told her I'm like, so mom, you know this Bible verse. I tell the story, and then I was like, and then in Greek it looks like this, and showed her my arm, and she just quickly just grabbed my arm and put it out of sight. Just oh, he just oh my god, just couldn't. Wow, oh, that's, <laughs> that's something about mom makes me laugh. It's just ah, oh, they just oh, why he just wants. Don't that. you think she's like maybe funnier than she's ever been? She's pretty funny. You know what she yeah. said? Um, Our mom I, is is struggling with dementia, older age. I don't issues. say well, she's struggling with it. She has it. She has it. I don't, yeah, but. She said, I went and made a cup of coffee, and I was talking to her, and I put my coffee up on the little um, thing where the TV is. Mm-hmm. And she goes, now, be careful where you put that. You might mess my dust up. I got it all like I like it right there. <laughs> and that's her way of saying, when is somebody going to come here and dust this That's her chest? way of saying, I know that's dusty. But she just was. Yep. Yeah. M- mess my dust up. Don't I got mess it right. my dust. Yep. No, but she's funny. She's very funny. We're funny. We know how to mm-hmm. laugh. We um, laugh a lot. Well, we were just talking about that. Talking about laughing, telling <laughs> stories. So we're going to tell stories on here. We are. I've got one, but I I don't know. Maybe I, do you want me to tell it now or you want me to wait to the end? I want you to tell it now. Okay. So during our break, we did lots of things, but one of the things we're traveling and we found ourselves in Florida at our daughter's and we had had a fun day going out and Doing some sightseeing, kind of pretending to be tourists for a day, and there was a place. Where was this? In Florida? Yeah, in Florida. There was a place over near the beach that, um, actually, I think it's on the river. She's in the part of Florida where there's several, a couple of rivers, you know, from the mainland to the ocean. You have to cross rivers. So, no, I think it was over on the beach. Anyway, 
she's been wanting to take us this place. It's never open or it's too busy or whatever when we're ready to go. So we go. So we chose to sit on the patio and it was all, it was very cozy. Lots of the patio lights and it had like a fence around the outside. And I guess it was like maybe a neighborhood behind you. You know, like the main road was in the front of the restaurant. You walk through the front of the restaurant to the back and it was like a canteen was the name of it. And it was all, you cantina. know. Cantina. Cantina. Well, no, I think they called it a canteen. Anyway. A canteen that you drink liquid out of? I think it was like that was part of the name. Okay. Um, but it's very chill, you know, nothing fancy. And they had like bushes and vines and things growing on the fence and all this. And we got seated in a corner. So the fence was on our right. Like Tim and I were sitting with our back to a fence. And then we had a fence on our right. Sarah was sitting across the table, looking, facing us. And we had been there, and this couple next to us was at a two-seater, and they had their dog, and they had brought dog food, you know, and they had the dog had a little water bottle, whatever, and he was doing really well, and they were sitting there, and, like, it seemed like we'd already had a conversation with them about something. And um, we're sitting there, and Sarah is intently staring past me. hmm And her eyes are moving. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, what is it? And she said, there's a possum. A possum has come over the fence. Is in the bushes right behind my head. Right behind your head. <laughs> At the restaurant. At the restaurant. I turn around, you can't see him. And like, he shines the flashlight and it catches its eyes. No. Yeah. It's sitting there going, and it was a baby possum. And this was at night? It was a baby possum, yeah. It had gotten dark, like right as we were getting there, whatever. No. Yeah. The, the, so now the issue becomes, we say something to our waiter, and he's looking at it. Well, all of this, and the couple next to us gets really nervous because if the dog sees the possum, the dog's going ballistic, right? Oh, no. And then in the middle of all this, the dog locks on the possum. Okay, good. So this couple ends up having to move. To calm down their dog. I'm excited They about go it. somewhere else. And the waiter You goes, weren't moving? Well, he walked past. He was he was now like between our table and their table and going over kind of behind their table. But Sarah could see he's him. He's pretty I'd brave possum. Sarah, yeah. He's like, well, this is... The, and I, it's been a while, okay? This wasn't yesterday. So I don't remember all the details. My family can correct me on the thing. But so our waiter was like... Okay, I'm going to go. I'll go talk to the manager. I'll tell him, you know, blah, blah, blah. So he comes back and says, they say that he comes every night. Like they, So the manager comes back. You know what? The manager has food. For the possum? Yes. Throwing the possum, throwing French fries over the fence, trying to get the possum to move and go get them. Did the possum do that? Yeah, it finally left. But the point is they're feeding the possum. Yeah. It's going to come back. <laughs> Yeah. Like, anyway, that was my new experience I'd never had in my life. I've never gone to a restaurant and had a possum walk right behind me on the fence. No, that's pretty funny. I was at a restaurant one time. And, and we do have a picture. I'll have to get I that. I do want to see it. Yeah. Yeah. I was at a restaurant, a popular restaurant. Like, it was a lot of people there. It was a nightlife kind of restaurant. And I'm sitting with some friends, and our spouses are on the other side of the table. And far from the distance, there's a TV mounted in the corner. And we happen to notice, coming down from the bottom of the TV, is a mouse oh. going down the wall. Ooh. And we're like, okay, don't tell the ladies or we will be leaving the restaurant. <laughs> but there is a mouse It's just like, you wall. have to keep that on the down low, right? Yeah, so we go tell the server, we're like, hey, we don't want to make a deal, but there is a mouse over there. So we finish eating. And we get done eating and we're like, all right. And, and the, the wives are like, what are y'all laughing about? What's so funny? Like, we'll tell you later. So we get done eating and say, oh, y'all want to know what we were laughing about? <laughs> there was a mouse in here. <laughs> All right, we're leaving. Goodness, I've handed Frank a picture of the oh, possum. wow. <laughs> and this is, uh, he's peeking. He's right <laughs> there. That's so funny. <laughs> And he ain't even a scared about it. He ain't even a scared. He's like, they don't give me some French fries if I sit here long enough. I love that Sarah was like, um, I didn't know this was an option. <laughs> but we have possum. Yep. That's great. Well, um, here we are. We were our last episode. In our last episode, we were talking about oh, I like a, that new, voice. a new art. 
author. Previously on History Through Previously the Eyes of Faith. Previously on History Through the Eyes of Faith, a recap. It was an author that Angie brought to the podcast named Glenn or Greg? Glenn. Glenn Shriver. Shrivener. Shrivener or Shrivener. Yeah. And he is British. Yes. And he's written a book called The Air We Breathe. Yes. And in The Air We Breathe, breathe are these um, different attributes, different character traits, different emotions maybe. I can't remember the whole list. Um, I would say that they're all like beliefs that we have. About, beliefs. About equality, compassion, consent, enlightenment, science, freedom, progress. And those are all in the air that we breathe. And the author is basically saying they're all based in a Christian faith. Worldview, yes. Christian worldview. Yeah. <clears throat> so she got introduced to that. He was interviewing another guy named uh, John Dixon. John Dixon talked about... Um, what we've quoted of him so far. What we've quoted on him so far has to do with wisdom, being innately a... Well, uh, it was about Charlemagne and the Carolingian Renaissance, and he was quoting Alcuin and saying that Alcuin had a wisdom theology. So it was Alcuin's quote okay. that we really liked. So that's where we go back and listen to it. Yeah, so we, um, that conversation was coming from his work, his comments in the chapter on enlightenment. But we're still, we're still going to be talking about enlightenment. Right. We're still at the, toward the end of that. <clears throat> Do we, you know, I didn't really know in a previous episode, are we still framing our conversation in a certain time period? Well, where we are on our timeline, if you put a pin in it, is still in the 13th century. And what we're doing is sitting here for a while and looking back. Okay, mm -hmm. and what brought us to this conversation of looking back was the discussion about the Magna Carta, followed by the rise of universities, and mm -hmm. talking about how universities and what we know as the scientific method grew out of a Christian worldview, and so this is more uh, a different way of telling the story, another person's look at the story to help see that. So. In the 13th century, would that be roughly 800 years ago? Yes. Yes. Okay. Which is not that long. Not in the big scheme of in things. In the big scheme of things, 800 years ago. Yeah. Seems like... Oh, but there uh, was no Europeans on this continent yet. No. You know. That we... No Europeans, right. No Europeans on this continent yet. But if we uh, had well, somebody... Uh, except for maybe the Vikings that went up to Greenland. But if we had a person from each century in the room, there wouldn't be that many people. No. And it's really not that many generations when you start thinking about right, it. Right, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. So yeah. it's not that long ago. Right. So are we ready to get into it? There are buildings that we could go to that were built at the same time. Sure. Yeah. And yeah, let's, uh, let's see if we can saddle up and tell me what's, what's happening in this episode. Up. Yeah, okay. So when we had ended up, uh, Glenn Shrivener had said that— Are we sure it's Shrivener? I've heard it pronounced both ways. Okay. Well, we need to get somebody on that. No, I mean, if I've we're heard— we're going to have him on I've the show— I've heard him introduced both ways. I've heard people say Shrivener. I've heard—yeah, anyway. If we're going to have him on the show, we need to right. know how to pronounce it. Um. So he's, his last sentence that we talked about, or what introduces where we're going, is he says, we ought to take stock of the Enlightenment which already existed in the Middle Ages. And our previous episode built up to that point, okay? And so he wants to talk about key developments that happened in medieval times in the area of technology, human rights, universities, and parliaments, okay? And he talks about some others, but those are the ones that are appropriate for where we are on our timeline. So in, starting with the area of technology, he says labor-saving innovations were a vital concern in medieval Europe with the religious communities like monasteries leading the way, innovations to save labor. Where the Romans had relied heavily on slaves called living tools by Aristotle and Plato, monks set about making mechanical ones, okay? To replace the drudgery of human toil, there were great advances in wind and water power, in sail technology, and in agronomy, selective plant breeding, 
the three-field rot- rotation system, the heavy plow, and more. Okay, Aries. So uh, the monks are, are are making these advancements because they you know they need help. Yeah, eyeglasses were invented, a huge help for an increasingly literate people. For the praises of God, immense and ornate structures were built, cathedrals. We had an episode on that. There are 26 of those in England alone. These were made possible by architectural innovations like flying buttresses and and the Gothic arch, which we talked about. They housed the world's most sophisticated machines till then, pipe organs. Hmm. Okay? Soon, though, that accolade would belong to mechanical clocks invented in the 13th century to some degree, to serve the monastery's need for regular hours of prayer. Hmm. As far as a medieval Christian was concerned, technology was a place where the good of humanity and the glory of God would embrace. Isn't that cool? Mm-hmm. Okay, in the area of human rights, earlier we noted that the historian Tom Holland had an analogy about the secular realm. Augustine planted the concept, and it, ta- it attained a spectacular bloom in the 11th and 12th centuries. These particular centuries are an important but often overlooked flowering in history. They are sometimes called the Gregorian reforms after Pope Gregory VII, whom we discussed, 1020 to 1085. Others speak of the papal revolution since there were multiple popes who carried forward what Gregory dubbed his reformation. During this period, the legal rulings of church courts were being compiled and analyzed, taking the assumptions of faith notions like equality, charity, marriage, and much more, and codifying them as church law, canon law. Remember our discussion about the decretum? I don't know if you remember that. That mm-hmm. was back you know, a couple of episodes ago. What emerged was a robust, robust and unprecedented language of rights, and this was new. Coming right. out of those codified church laws. From the beginning, Christians had felt obligations, like the obligation to give to the poor. But now church lawyers were enshrining the other side of the equation, rights. The wealthy don't just have a responsibility to the poor. The poor have a claim on the wealthy. They have rights, human rights, which are possessed by each person regardless of their position or resources, but simply by nature. Over time, such notions became part of secular law, too. Now, as we've talked about before with history, there can be ideas that exist on um, what we, I don't want to say the word elite, but at the, the the thinking level of organizations like the university, like the church, that then takes them a number of years to work their way down to the common man on the street. And that's what he says when he says, over time, such notions became part of secular law, too. And we saw that in the Magna Carta. Remember Mm -hmm. all of our talk with the Magna Carta about how it was coming out of the University of Paris and theological reflection, and they were the whole thing about trial by ordeal or trial by jury, all that kind of. That was an example of this. The idea that we are free and equal individuals under law with certain inalienable rights was not an Enlightenment discovery, but a biblical truth. Planted by Genesis, cultivated by the church, and blooming brightly in those dark days of medieval Christendom. Hmm. Isn't that interesting? I love that. Planted, it was a biblical truth planted by Genesis, and we're going to talk more about that. Cultivated by the church and blooming brightly in those dark days of medieval Christendom. In reference to universities, he says, one of the great gifts of Christian civilization to the world emerged right in the heart of the Middle Ages. We have seen how learning was prized and pursued in the monasteries, but universities were something new. They differed from the Greek and Roman philosophical schools that were founded by a single teacher or school of thought. So back during classical times, Plato had a school. Aristotle had a school. These were different. They were different, too, from Chinese academies for training court officials. These bodies existed not to pass down received wisdom or simply to train people in vocational skills. They were established for the pursuit of higher learning, to expand knowledge. The goal was not just preservation of knowledge, but innovation, which was now incentivized since scholars would compete to gain the attention of the different faculties. So if you, you had the incentive that you would get more attention, get a job at a more prestigious school, just like you still do, if you innovated in the areas of knowledge. So that's a medieval idea. Yeah, okay. Pretty interesting, huh? Because it still goes on today. 
In the 1200s, Bologna, Paris, Oxford, and Cambridge all had universities. In the following century, another 20 at least were added, with thousands of students attending. Today's universities have become universal, but it was sentiments like Oxford's motto that inspired them. Oxford's motto is, God is my guiding light. Is it still? It says Oxford's motto, unless they've changed it, which I don't know. Parliaments. In these, and we talked a little bit about this with the Magna Carta too. In these centuries, church lawyers were also busy applying theological concepts to political realities. That's what, a lot of what we discussed with Magna Carta, uh, applying theological concepts to political realities. If citizens were possessors of rights, then rulers could never be thought to have unlimited powers. Think about that. Right. That kind of goes hand in hand. Instead, rulers were meant to minister to, to the ruled. That's certainly what Christ taught. And what's more, in the Old Testament, God established contracts called covenants with his people in which he pledged to be a good and merciful ruler. This became a model for how earthly rulers should treat their people too. Covenants. If they failed to honor the rights of their citizens, they broke the compact by virtue of which they were appointed. All of this sounds very similar to the social contract theories espoused by political philosophers of the Enlightenment, which we haven't gotten to that. We will. But that came 600 years earlier. It, this came about 600 years before the Enlightenment. And that's the point he's making. And such reforms had practical effects, too. In England, for instance, the king's powers began to be limited via Magna Carta in 1215. Parliament was established in 1275 and extended to commoners in 1295 and 1327. Legally and politically, reform and revitalization was slowly but surely remaking the world. So his, his point with all of those is these things were happening in the Middle Ages. These are not things mm -hmm. like universities, parliaments, human rights, and what was the first one? Um, technology are not... New things from the age of reason or the enlightenment. These here's the evidence of where they were happening in the Middle Ages. There was something that um that happened, and I don't remember when it when it was, but when you went back and talked about um you mentioned it briefly a minute ago, the phrases around it had to do with some some judicial uh, decision making, like the trial by ordeal, yeah, 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 trial by yeah. ordeal and trial by jury. That came out of like some about not putting the guilt or the 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 guilt of a decision on a one person, right? Because that would be like a mortal sin if you decide that somebody else has to die. So it, there's a theology base behind exactly, it. and that's, and the that's point. what he's kind of saying. Here. Yeah, there's there's there is a theology base behind all of this. That's the reason that we're talking about it. Okay, right. so now we're going to skip over to his chapter on science. Okay, and he talks about because we've. Is he going to talk about dinosaurs? <laughs> no, <laughs> because we've been like talking about it a little bit when we were talking about the universities and the roots of science. Okay, and so, and he titles it the scientific, and then he has an R in parentheses evolution. So is it revolution or evolution? Okay. He said there are at least two ways to tell the story of modern science, revolution and evolution. Some favor revolution, centuries of medieval darkness followed by an unprecedented breakthrough. Suddenly, Nicholas Copernicus puts the sun in the center of the solar system. Let there be light. Science is created. But this creation story has some large holes in it. Okay, now that happens in the 16th century that Copernicus does that. And that's the story that most of us have been taught that there's this that that everything disappears rome falls a thousand years of darkness then pop up here's copernicus he gets it right and now you know puts the sun in the center of the universe and let there be light science is created but he says there's a lot some large holes in that story the evidence seems to point in another direction. Below, he's going to share with you a much more evolutionary model for the development of science. And it begins not in the 16th century, but much earlier. To understand he's going to take it. the 12th, the 13th century. You know, even back further. So this the is going to be like. Century, this, this is, no, we're going back to the ancient times. Like, this is going to be like what we did concerning uh, mm, 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 enlightenment and went back and told the story from earlier on. Okay. So he's going to say. 
To understand it, we will travel back in time to put ourselves into the mindset of an ancient astronomer. So when they say ancient, they're talking like Greek, Roman. That's ancient, right? Until the 16th century, the Earth was assumed to be at the center of the universe with the sun, moon, and stars orbiting around it. We might imagine that ancient thinkers were proud of this fact, having the universe revolve around them, right? But it wasn't a boast. For them, the heavens were where the most perfect beings existed. Earth, being at the bottom, was the sump of the cosmos. So it wasn't seen as we're the center, but we're at the bottom. Okay. Okay. But it, uh, famous teachers of the Earth-centered model were the great philosopher Aristotle, who his here's numbers just in case you need to know are 384 to 322. We're going down because that's BC, and Ptolemy, who was 100 to 170 AD. Okay. So those were some famous teachers of the Earth-centered model. An Egyptian, Ptolemy was an Egyptian astronomer. Ptolemy provided the mathematics to map onto Aristotle's model, and even though his math was intricate and at points highly improbable, the main thing was that it worked, at least well enough to predict the movements of the stars and planets, but there were problems. A central feature of the ancient Greek worldview was the idea of fate and necessity. Aristotle saw all things unfolding by an all-determining reason. Neither the gods nor humanity nor the world were free. Everything was the way it had to be. Just kind of let that sit in a minute. There's an all-determining reason, and everything is the way it is because that's the way it has to be. Neither the gods nor humanity nor the world were free. Everything's determined as it's supposed to be. So on a question like what shape are the orbits of the planets, if you ask that question, Aristotle would answer circular because the circle is the most perfect shape and in all the cosmos, heavenly bodies are the closest to perfection. He just made that up. That was his reasoning. Circle's a perfect shape. Heavenly bodies are the closest to perfection. So obviously the planets would be circular. But a circle is a perfect shape. Right. According to him. Right, but the other people would reason that too, and you can go go study history, philosophy, and you can figure that out. Notice the assumptions. Notice the assumptions. There is a way things must be that is baked into the fabric of the cosmos. That's the assumption. There is a way things must be, and that's baked into the fabric of the cosmos. The orb of the planets are fixed by reason, and we can access that reason by thinking carefully. Mm. Remember, we talked about the thinkers way back there. Investigating the world with our senses is not that reliable after all. Our senses can deceive us. For Aristotle and his followers, studying the world was less a journey outwards into the surprising way things are, not looking around observing, and more journey of the mind upwards into the predictable ways things must be. All this made the Greeks brilliant at reasoning and indifferent to experimentation. Brilliant at reasoning, indifferent to experimentation. But the Bible presented a very different picture. Did you say indifferent? Yes. The Bible presented a very different picture and therefore provided profoundly different foundations for the understanding of the world. Let's explore three features of biblical teaching which are taught in the first three chapters of the Bible, Bible, truths about God, the world, and humanity. Okay? Okay, before we do this. Yes. Give me another overarching summary of why we're having this <laughs> because it's getting heady to me because we're making these statements that a judeo-christian worldview is the only fertile ground that the scientific method could draw grow from okay that's the statements we're making we've we've been making that we've been Hedging around that or saying that in one way or another in episode 99. We talked about it in episode you 100. Have, don't put me in this. Okay. You've been making this statement. I've read the statement. Okay. I've, uh, yes. So how do we explain that? How do we get our mindset in that? So what I appreciate what, about what Glenn is doing here is he is going back and retelling the story with that mind frame in mind and showing us how the evidence for that is already there, right? Okay. So now we're going to go back into Genesis. And when you and I were in Genesis, we were just telling the story. God did this. Adam said that. Eve went here. Cain did that. Something, something, something. So we're familiar with that. But we're not trying to like pull. We haven't 
First of all, you can study the Bible forever, and that's one of the things that makes it so great. Every time you go there and seek wisdom, you find new and different wisdom. Not not contradictory wisdom, but new layers of wisdom, right? So we're going back okay. to take that story and mm-hmm. see, because the, the, he says that the here's what Greek science was based on. Okay, well, they didn't even call it science. It was about thinking. And it says... But the Bible has a very different picture and therefore has different foundations for the understanding of the world. That's not something we, I agree that that's heady, okay? Like, what are the Bible's foundations for the understanding of the world? That's to go looking, okay, that's like reading in between the lines, right? Mm-hmm. Just like we were reading in between the lines with Aristotle, we're the bottom of the cosmos, the earth is. Perfection, the circle's perfect, so they're, they have to be circle because the heavenly bodies are, the, you know, it's like, that's a different way of reasoning. We don't think that way, right? So what he's going to show us is the way we think is based on the Genesis model. But, and so how did that happen? That's the point. Okay. Okay. So now, going back to Genesis. Uh, in the beginning, there was God, Genesis 1-1, very first verse in the Bible. This is our origin. According to Genesis... And because God exists before and behind the universe, it means God is unconstrained. God was before anything else. And that means God is unconstrained. Mm -hmm. Unlike the ancient Greek idea of an eternal universe, the God of the Bible does not have to make do with a pre-existing world, nor must he conform to laws or logic that exist outside him. He's unconstrained. He's before all that. God is free. When he chooses to make the world, he shapes it by his own creative voice so that it's exactly as he wants it. Quote, God saw all that he had made and it was very good. Genesis 1.31. God is free. An example, the earth has one moon in verse 16, but it could have had three or nine. Why one? The answer does not lie in the logical necessity of a single mooned earth. The deepest answer is simply because God. Mm. That's how he made it. And if you want to figure out how many moons the earth or any planet actually has, you ought to go and check. So you have to investigate to find out. This holds true for everything in the natural world. The shape of the planetary orbits might be circular, or God might have chosen to make them triangular for all we know. Nothing can be assumed. Everything has to be tested. This is because God is free. Then the universe could be otherwise that it is, that the universe could be otherwise than it is, it could be any way that God chooses, because God's free. Because God is free, it could be however God chose it to be. You might think that the world must be a certain way, but there is no must. You need to investigate exactly what is, what actually is. The freedom of God became a foundational concept for the way Christians came to approach science. You see the difference there? There's mm-hmm. not a preset plan. And if you understand this part, then all the parts fit together. It's that God is free. So you got to go investigate. You got to go investigate. You got to go learn more. Yeah. The second important conviction, so the first one is the freedom of God. The second <clears> one is that the world can be figured out and figured out by little old humans. Philosophers of science use more technical terms for the, this foundation-like intelligibility or comprehensibility but what they mean is figure out ability of the universe so languages it can be figured out these are regularities in the way the world works and those regularities are reliable they hold true both now and back in the jurassic age both here and far away on jupiter okay so there's these the world can be figured out and this is all schreiber it's just his retelling. He's not making up these ideas. No, no, I know. I'm just making your reading, he, and he, I'm making he's, sure that's... He's just, yes, this is all him, and he's trying to communicate this concept to lay people, right? Um, this amounts to a belief that the universe is reliably ordered, but there is another belief involved, too, the conviction that humans can understand this order. Now, we touched on this a little bit in previous conversations. It's astonishing that these two truths should hold. Astrophysicist Neil deGrasse Tyson has marveled that, quote, the goings-on within the three-pound human brain are what enabled us to figure out our place in the universe. That ins- that's a marvel in and of itself, mm-hmm. right? 
Mm-hmm. Here we find a stunning, a stunning coordination between the universe and the human brain. Our brains are part of the physical universe, an infinitesimal part in the grand scheme of things, but they can, to a degree, understand the whole. Astonishingly, we find the universe figure outable. Albert Einstein was so amazed by this fact that he called it a miracle. Quote, the eternal mystery of the world is comprehensibility. The fact that it is comprehensible is a miracle. Wow. And we just assume that. Like, we just assume that. Like, oh, why? We ask questions all the time. Why is that that way? And we expect to find an answer because we assume there is an order. Where do we get that? Because God has created an order. It's because of our belief system underneath that Mm -hmm. all, right? Such a miracle is the fundamental precondition for science. Yet why should the world be like this? And why should our minds be in such a privileged position? Those questions are difficult to answer on atheist foundations. If our minds are purely survival machines, that doesn't give us great confidence in their truth-seeking abilities. But if we turn to Genesis 1, we find the kind of world and the kind of human abilities which science requires. On page one of the Bible, we meet an orderly God who has made an orderly world and placed humanity right at the intersection of heaven and earth. Humanity is, quote, in the image of God, and we have, quote, dominion over the earth. Genesis 1, 26 to 27. He's given us an order and a place. If you put aside the Bible, the fact that the mysteries of the cosmos can be probed by a three-pound human brain is an unexplained miracle. Yeah. For an atheist, it's a miracle without a miracle maker. That's interesting. Yet with Genesis 1 in hand, the miracle makes sense, and the foundations of science are laid. I have a comment about the atheist. It's a mir- For the atheist, it's a miracle without a miracle maker. Comment about that later. Okay. So Genesis 1 teaches the freedom of God <clears throat> and the figure-out ability of the world. But all this might give us a false impression. We might imagine that humanity is simply godlike in its comprehension of the cosmos. If we're tempted to think that, then Genesis 3 gives us a sobering dose of reality. The chapter tells of the fall of humanity. Adam and Eve disobey the voice of God, and the world is unraveled. Okay? So if we just go with the freedom of God and the figure-out ability of the world— it might give the false impression that we are simply godlike and we can comprehend the com- cosmos because we're godlike. But chapter three gives us a different well, story. Let's hear it. So, chapter three, we know what happens. They disobey, eat the fruit, everything falls apart. Yeah. Such disobedience goes against the very rationality that made the world, and the consequences affect every part of humanity, including our rational faculties. As soon as it happens, Adam and Eve start doing some seriously stupid things, like hiding from God, a ridiculous game, like you can do that, covering their nakedness with fig leaves, ridiculous clothing, and covering their guilt with excuses, ridiculous self-justification. Eve says, the serpent tempted me, and I gave in. But Adam says, the woman which you gave me gave me the fruit. We just start blaming people and justifying our behavior. Yet their behavior is more than just ridiculous. It's relatable. We can relate. We all have a complicated relationship with the truth. The poet T.S. Eliot said, quote, humankind cannot bear very much reality. That's interesting to chew on, huh? Yeah. We know we ought to be truth seekers, but so often we hide from uncomfortable realities and we excuse our mistakes rather than exposing them. That, That is, everybody does that from birth. We hide from uncomfortable realities and we excuse our mistakes rather than exposing them. This provides us with our third important conviction. So we talked about the first one is that God is free. The second one is that the world is, uh, can be figured out. And so now we're at the third one, which is if we want to do science, we must Take this human fallibility into account. That we may have not have it right. This is precisely why the modern scientific method takes the shape that it does. Psychologist Steven Pinker explains it well. The signature practices of science, including open debate, peer review, 
and double-blind methods are designed to circumvent the sins to which scientists, being human, are vulnerable. Mm -hmm. So we recognize in the scientific method that we're fallible. And that, where does that come from? Genesis 3. I'm just going to throw this in here. I didn't think about this till right that minute. But other major religions of the world, to reach, well, I think we've mentioned this before, to be whatever you're going for, at peace, nirvana, spending eternity in the heavens, living on the right planet, being with God forever, whatever the goal of life is in the other religions, Everyone except Christianity, you get there by what you do. So fallibility is going to mess you up, mm-hmm. right? Christianity is the only one that recognizes you can't do it. You're fallible, and God comes and does it for you. Okay, so that is in science. The world, God is free. He can create it however he wants it, but it is figure outable. He's made it in an order but we're fallible, so we have to figure out a way to investigate it that makes room for our failures. Isn't that interesting? I think it is. Yeah. As physicist <clears throat> Richard Feynman put it, the first principle of science is, quote, that you must not fool yourself as you are the easiest person to fool, end quote. So these are three foundational teachings from Genesis, the freedom of God, the figure-outability of the world, and the fallibility of humans. Press deeply into these truths, as Christians did, especially in the Middle Ages, and what you get is a scientific evolution. Let's trace that medieval development. So we're going to trace that development of the scientific evolution that was based on those principles. Did you want to say your atheist thing now, or is that like an end thing? It's Probably an end thing. Okay. So we're going to go back to our guy. You said a miracle without a miracle maker. Yeah. We're going to go back to our guy, Augustine or Augustine of Hippo, whichever way you want to say it. I like to say hypo. (laughs) Augustine's most famous and most uh, accessible book, Confessions, was an extended prayer to God. Yet even in the context of prayer, the North African bishop could not help but return to a topic that pervades his other writings, the freedom of God. You, O God, were, and besides you, nothing was. From nothing then you created heaven and earth. That's a quote from Augustine. The creation of the universe, quote, out of nothing, was a vital theme in Augustine's thinking and became foundational for Christian theology. It was in stark opposition to that of Aristotle, who taught that the world had always existed. Okay, so foundational for Christian theology is that the creation of the universe came out of nothing. Augustine taught that. But if Aristotle was wrong about that, perhaps he was wrong about other things. It was Christians who were most comfortable with challenging the classical assumptions. For instance, the Eastern Byzantine Empire uh, Emperor. In the Eastern Byzantine Empire, John Philoponus, 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 that sounds good. Philoponus. A.D. 490 to 570, questioned another of Aristotle's beliefs that motion requires immediate and continuous external force. Aristotle thought that objects like the planets move only because they are being pushed very directly by a mover. This led him and his contemporaries to think that the stars and planets were being constantly nudged about by spiritual powers so that perhaps they were spiritual or that perhaps they were spiritual powers chugging through the heavens. Okay. But the assumptions they were working with were easily disproved if only you ran some experiments. Today, a simple game of darts would teach you that objects can move without a mover, constantly pushing them. Right? You can throw a dart, it's going to move after you let go of it. Okay? So you can do experiments that say objects can move without a mover. Aristotle thought of the planets as like darts in the hands of the cheating darts player, like the one who just goes and shoves it in. But John Pelopinus knew from experience that objects do not need always to be pushed. Sometimes they can be thrown. They can move on the basis of an initial impetus given to them. And if that is so, then perhaps the stars and planets have been set in motion and are wheeling around in the heavens without the need for constant pushing. The problem for Philoponus was figuring out why the stars and planets were not slowing down to a standstill. If they were not being pushed, surely friction would stop them. Fast-forwarding to the age of universities, and here we meet the natural philosophers, scholars reasoning about the natural world. And we talked about the roots of natural philosophy when we were talking about the rise of universities. It would be 
anachronistic to call them scientists, but it's also unlikely that modern science would have developed without them. So science wasn't called science yet, but it wouldn't have developed without these works of the natural philosophers. That was the view of philosopher and mathematician Alfred North Whitehead. And this is interesting. He lives from 1861 to 1947. And as an aside, I was a philosophy and religion major in college, and I did a lot of work on Whitehead stuff. That was a long time ago. I don't remember all of it, but I certainly recognize his name and know that it was a big deal in what I was mm. doing. So his, his dates were 1861 to 1947. He was not a Christian. Nevertheless, he was certain that science had emerged from within a Christian context because of the widespread, this is why, because of the widespread, quote, faith in the possibility of science derivative from medieval theology. So he saw that. He was writing in the late 19th, early 20th century, mid half, first half of the 20th century, and he saw that that developed, that that world that the possibility of science was derivative from medieval theology. A core belief for the medievals was in the two books, the book of God's scripture and the book of nature of the universe. Isn't that interesting? Mm -hmm. There was the one, the written word, and then the revealed word and God's creation in the universe. This was at the heart. Well, it's also, it was, yes. This was at the heart of their faith in the figure out ability of the world. We can study the Bible to know God, and we can study the world to know His handiwork. Both are important, and both were pursued with rigor and reverence. So I'm just not figuring out how that works. Just I'm not working on that just because I'm curious, but because it teaches me something mm -hmm. about God and His creation. When you say working on anything. Yeah, anything, anything whatever that you're yeah. investigating. Yeah. So one such philosopher was, and this guy's going to come up again and later either— I don't know if we'll get to him this episode. Probably not, but maybe. His name was William of Ockham. Well, we just got to him. Tw well, he's coming up again. 1295 to 1347. He was at Oxford University. He implied himself to some of the questions of Philoponus. William forwarded the idea, which was not original to him, that space was a frictionless vacuum and that ongoing impetus can be given to an object, which was a forerunner to Newton's law of motion. And we'll come back. To say a little bit more about what he said, but she's given that he's giving him as an example of this case moving forward. Science emerged among people who believed certain things. Specifically, they believed that science could be done. They believed in what Einstein called the miracle of comprehensibility, the wonder that puny human brains can figure out the mysteries of the cosmos. They trusted in this miracle because they believed that humans are made in God's image. And what is perhaps more fascinating than these beliefs is the facts that such beliefs were rewarded. So they, they bore fruit. They learned things. Like all of this equipment that you're, we're using right now is mm -hmm. born out of that belief. I mean, all yeah. the conveniences of our life, you know, everything. It turns out that the world is open to this kind of investigation and that human minds are fit for the task. This did not need to be the case, but the world showed itself to be the kind of place that Copernicus in the 16th century and company believed it to be. What's more, humans appeared to be the kind of creatures these Christians assumed they were. Since Copernicus, we have witnessed five centuries of extraordinary scientific advance built on these assumptions. The foundations appear strong. So not only... Like, they have borne fruit. That's a Christian way of saying it. But they work. And, and we're thriving because of that. A great and many... Go ahead. Go ahead. Well, no. A great many scientists today are not Christian, of course. Some are anti-Christian. But all of them must depend on Einstein's miracle that this puny brain can understand. Many will dislike the language of miracle. They may insist that their belief in science is based not on religious reasons, but on pragmatic ones. It delivers. They may say that they have evidence, centuries of scientific advance. They trust science because it works. This is all true. Science does work. But we ought to be curious about why it works. And with every scientific discovery, we ought to be further convinced of Einstein's miracle and still more inquisitive about why it should hold. In a sense, you could view the whole of science as a giant experiment testing the hypothesis that the world is as miraculous as Einstein said. The hypothesis looks more assured with every scientific advance. So I'm going to go to a kind of a summary of where we are. Okay. I'm going to say that what I'm hearing, the content that you're sharing, what the author is sharing, is that the core of science comes from 
the creation of a human brain to be able to learn and to know more. Come, yeah, that's one. It comes from the belief that God is free, so it can be however. It, it's not set. You don't just figure out one part and know everything. Mm-hmm. And that people are able to believe it. And then what was the third one? People are able to learn about it. I'm going back. Keep and that and it accounts for the fallibility that that we can be we can be wrong. Right, which also comes from a Judeo-Christian worldview. And that from the beginning of any science there's this ongoing uh, to learn more to see if we're wrong, to see if we're right, to create. And, and then we develop a scientific method that takes those variables into account. Yes, that there could be another option. Yeah. That we can understand. Right, and that we have to account for the fact that we could be wrong. Like how do we, so we have to test it over and over again to prove. So it's a theory, like, like they call it the theory of evolution because it's a theory that's continually being tested. It's a theory. Yeah. Well, that, this might be a good time for my atheist thing. Okay. Is that okay with you? Yes. Because what you're, what you're saying about, it's getting a little heady. My, my thought was not as deep as what I, it's trying to happen now. But the fact that, that science, a belief in science is almost a belief in God because God created science. The principles revealed to us by God in a Christian, Judeo-Christian worldview gave the groundwork for science to emerge in a way that other places didn't. So just take that statement the way I phrased it, however you want to phrase it. But I am atheist. You said, you know, the miracle that our brain can comprehend something for an atheist is a miracle without a miracle maker. So I've said this before. I might have even said on this podcast. We've done this a few years now, so these things pop up. But I have, I'm a fan of a comedian who is a vocal atheist. Mm-hmm. But I love his comedy so much, yeah, that I want to say to him personally, your comedy is proof in a creator. Oh, there you go. That's cool. You may not say there is one, but if there wasn't one, your comedy wouldn't exist like, to, to affect me in the way it affects me. Yeah. It's like, a spiritual thing. Is what yeah, the saying. comedy is a spiritual thing that I relate to you. And when you are saying these things or creating these things, it affects me spiritually. So that's proof that there's a creator that will affect me spiritually. So I don't know how you can be an atheist and create and have that kind of impact and not believe that that's some, and you can go in a circle about it, I guess, Mm -hmm. but I've always thought Mm -hmm. of that in a way. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's a cool thing. Cool thing to think about. Because it's brilliance. You know, I'm like, I don't know how this guy can be an atheist when that is so funny. (laughs) Yeah. That's just proof to me that there is a God. Because because the sense of humor is something that we're that wouldn't evolve is that what you're saying? Yeah, I mean, how does that you know? It's like, like C.S. That has Lewis to be created. Back to the C.S. Lewis. We've never. I don't know how if we've even talked about C.S. Lewis on here, but he talks about in mere Christianity, the desire to help people. Where does that come from? Why do we have healthcare? Why do we oh, have ambulances? You know what? Intro to the next episode, right there, man. We're gonna get to that. Okay. But that's that's what he uses to justify yeah. that there is a God. Then why do I care if someone got hurt in a car accident? Right. Well, there's something in me that cares about that. Yeah. Or why is what is why do I have inside of me something that's fair or unfair? Without anybody telling me about God or creation or anything, I know what it feels like to be treated unfairly. Mm. Mm. innately mm-hmm. so where'd that come from yeah so anyway um cool i got a little fired up there at the end um i, I don't know if you noticed but i added something to the yes, studio there's something in the yeah. studio that i noticed it's a trader joe's bag mm-hmm. 
that I kind of got excited about when it took me a long time to notice it. We got another mystery bag, mystery bag. Now but it's, it's not time, time for, for the, mystery the mystery bag. bag. It's not time yet. <laughs> We're going to go in. Maybe the next episode you hear about the mystery bag. One of our regular listeners said, oh, please bring the mystery bag back when you come back off please the Please bring back the mystery bag. Um, we've enjoyed it. We're going to take... A week or so, eight or nine days, and then we're going to l- let you listen to another episode. So, um, reach out to us, DM us, whatever. Reach I out, DM, let email. us know what's going on, and give uh, us your questions, thoughts, comments. And when you hear this, you know, congratulate me and my wife. Oh, that's right. It'll be wow. Wow. I don't, that's crazy. Wow. That's wild. Wow. Yep. All right. All right. Life. All right. See you next time. Yeah. This has been History Through the Eyes of Faith podcast. Please rate and review, subscribe, or follow wherever you stream your podcasts. You may also contact us and comment at onethingonly.org. Just click on the History Through the Eyes of Faith podcast tab. You can also support this podcast by checking the link to our Ko-fi site in our bio. Thanks for listening.